Everybody, welcome to another episode of Work Stoppage. This is a Patreon episode, so thank you so much is for it, your continued support. Are we doing a Patreon? Support. Hold on, hold on. I actually have to stop us. Are we doing a Patreon episode? Are we? Yeah, or are we? It, are we? Are we skipping and just doing it public? Well, because the last one I uploaded was public. Yeah. yeah, but like we remember, we were talking about: Are we going to change oh, yeah. the model? Are we going to start putting all of these out? That's now? right. Um, yeah. yeah, that's we can we can make this a public episode. Okay. All right. Well, I'll redo the intro then. Um. Welcome to another episode of Work Stoppage. This is a public episode because we're switching up the formatting on you a little bit. Patreon subscribers, please don't be miffed. We have some extra special content coming your way. Uh, if you enjoyed Dan's Detroit I Do Mind Dying episode, I think you're going to be really psyched for the stuff that we have coming up. But uh, if you want to be more involved with the show, you can always hop in the Discord. You can always throw us five bucks a month on Patreon. And you can always throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We want to follow up, uh, first off, with a nursing home strike in Connecticut that was apparently avoided after the <laughs> governor, who threatened to call in the National Guard, completely and utterly caved <laughs> to many right. of the demands of the striking workers. I think that this is really a, a very interesting story in the way that it kind of landed, because it really, the the governor is taking credit. The governor's like, you know what? We did it. We stopped, we, we stopped the strike we didn't even have to call in the National Guard. And then yeah, this they guy... say, well, what, what did you have to do? Well, I mean, there we, we got rid of the, the what we thought was very progressive, 4.5% over or each two years, oh, over each of two years, mm -hmm. uh, and instead gave in uh, entirely to the workers' demands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so we reported on this a couple of weeks ago where, like, you know, I keep making that joke. You know, I should. People are going to take that as sarcasm if they listen to the last nope. episode because they're just going to be like, "Oh, that!" And Amazon doubled their workers <laughs> and all that other stuff. They're going right. to. No, they, I'm not being sarcastic yeah, yeah, this no. time. They really For did once, give in. Yeah, no, it's true. Because that, but that's the funniest thing about the way that they're spinning it. Right? Is is that like. The articles that I've seen about this, and even in this one from the Hartford Current, like it's like the 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 governors come out and declared victory. See, we we got a we got exactly what we wanted, folks. Win win. We we made uh, the the best compromise for the taxpayer. And by compromise, what I mean is the union said that we needed to give them twenty dollars an hour as a wage floor. So what we talked them down to is uh, to give them twenty dollars as a wage floor. So as you can see, we are tough negotiators. And then they say it's like. <laughs> on <laughs> right and i don't want to i and i don't i mean i think we're being a little cynical here with like you know oh yeah it's not they, a we're bad supposed thing. to okay, no it's very think. good like <laughs> like why am i suddenly like feeling okay about this governor i really shouldn't <laughs> well, well was it isn't this the guy uh governor ned lamont who was threatening to bring in the national guard like personally like that was his yeah. That was his yeah. state solution to a labor dispute problem was to call the military cops. Well, yeah, and and that's the other thing that like we mentioned at the time that like all of the states just got a gigantic windfall 
in right. funding from the stimulus bill. So their whole argument that, hey, this is mostly coming out of Medicaid funding and we can't be bankrupting the taxpayers. So we got to we got to really stick to these really low, shitty wage increases. Like we said, that was bullshit at the time. And right. it's not as if the governor didn't know that. So what, like, I think that, like, how quickly they, they ended up just agreeing to this, like, just shows you that even when they know they can easily pay what the workers need, they're still willing to go all the way to the threat of calling in the fucking repressive state apparatus to act as scabs. Right. To try well, it, and, you know, scare people. Oh, isn't this the exact same thing as the whole working from home before the pandemic? Like so many people whose employers told them, like, we don't have the infrastructure. Or we don't have we there are too many, you know, administrative oversights that would happen if we let you work from home. And then they let everybody work from home. And it turned out to be better for the employees and the bosses in many cases. But it was it was like simply done as, a, as an exercise of power, as a show of precedent that like, no, you may not have this minor luxury in your workplace. And I can't help but feel the same way about like when they tell you that it's not viable or there's no money in the budget to increase wages by that much. It's just like, it's always a fucking lot. Like maybe there are a few fringe companies out there that really can't pay their workers more, but in that case they should just go out of business. Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that we should also, I mean, we do need to bring a touch of um, realism to this one in that like they, they postpone their action because the they still have to sign the agreement. They still they, right. like uh, this is sim not I mean similar to the TAing of, of the the trucker strike, except for the fact that you know it's already in favor of the workers, and the only person who's going to back out is the company. Right. Uh, and and hopefully we don't see that. But like they've agreed to do this, and if they do like try to back out, their bargaining power is incredibly diminished with this this uh, good uh, offer. Honestly. Yeah, and and like, also just to underline, like all credit to the, uh, obviously to the the workers at these facilities here for like sticking to it and like when they like getting that like that because that's a hell of a threat from from the the governor of the state you live in to be like, right? Oh, you want to strike? No, fuck you! I'm gonna bring in the, like basically my state's army to replace you, and the these these SEIU workers are like, all right, bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that I really think that maybe they're they're they almost like have to apologize. Like imagine like I bet I bet it was like really bad PR cuz remember it was like they were bring, being brought in as scabs and I was like, "Okay, well, you know, I mean, if they're going to just send them there to stand in a line, make sure that everybody goes back to work or hold, you know, make people work at gunpoint or whatever, you know, that's going to be bad for the PR." Well, they were going to go in there as scabs. And then, uh, I mean, like, but they still, like, it very much so appeared like a, a use of force on the workers who are literally taking care of the uh, of the elderly. And, yep. uh, and, and I think it just, it did still look really bad. I think that yeah. no matter which way you spun it, it just looked really bad. Well, I think really, in a lot of ways, what these uh, healthcare workers are showing is their resistance to the alienation from their labor, right? Because it's like when you want to send in the National Guard, it's like I'm so I'm mustering this like you know faceless like machinic state force to come in and repress you. And I think a lot of these workers, I don't know if it's just because Connecticut is not necessarily that big or what, but they're like, who are, you're going to call my like weird uncle? on me you're gonna call like a bunch of dudes i went to high school with to wear fatigues and make me work like fuck you i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be threatened by that yeah and yeah 
and and so just yeah just all praises to them for sticking with it and getting you know the wage increases that they deserve uh-huh. and and standing up to this like ri- honestly like ridiculous uh, threat from the state government for some yeah. people this is an increase in wages of eight dollars an hour god damn that rocks Which is so much so fucking good yeah i mean we yeah. even have words here from i think this is the the Connecticut State Senate uh, President Pro Tempore, mm-hmm. Martin Looney, which is a great name, uh, <laughs> who said that the pay increases, enhanced retirement benefits, and workforce development programs outlined in the proposal are long overdue. Quote, they were on the front lines for our most vulnerable residents during the worst pandemic in a century, and we rightfully lauded them as heroes. Now, with this agreement, we are putting money behind those words and financially supporting them for their critical work, which rocks. I don't know if this guy really believes that or if he's just trying <laughs> yeah. to look good at the end of a negotiating situation. But either yeah. way, what he said is ultimately correct, and right. uh, I support and the sentiment. It's wild yes. that like I just you just don't ever expect them to put those words in that order. Yeah, I, when I'm, I first I, read it, I thought it had to be a quote from a union representative yeah. because it was in such strong support of the <laughs> well, union. <laughs> well, because he 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 left out that you know little uh, qualifier that goes on there of, well, they had to drag us kicking and screaming into this situation <laughs> right, right, right. of doing the right thing. <laughs> But we did it, and so we will claim credit for it. (laughs) Well, speaking of governments trying to claim credit for things and trying to appear like the good guys in uh, labor disputes while actually being the bad guys... In New York, there is a draft. There is legislation currently being drafted that would "quote unquote" make it easier for gig workers to unionize, but in you know practice would relegate them to a sphere of entirely toothless unions and you know permanent classification as a less represented uh, class with less negotiating power than other workers in the country which is not an advantage you know it's not an upgrade from where they're already at <laughs> really that's already how they're treated so um, uh, their solution, that the quote-unquote solution that these New York legislators are trying to put together, is to allow gig workers to organize in a state-approved union without power to strike <laughs> or organize any labor stoppage and that would be required to have labor peace agreements <laughs> in place. And if you're a Not- listener of this show, you know our opinions on labor peace agreements. Right. Besides the fact that they're fascist, the, another thing uh, is that like these require these uh, contracts that they're supposed to get are required to be a minimum of five years. That's yeah. outrageous. Yeah, it, like everything just about destroying this. the struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the entire purpose of this legislation is to suppress the class struggle and not actually, you know, try and deal with it's contradictions because like, yeah, this, everything about this reminds me of, you know, everything about like thirties Italy. And I know that, 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 you know, the, the fascism comparison, it gets, you know, overused and by in, in overwrought ways. Right. But, it's but like very when you apt here, like, I, yeah, I really like the, the way the term corporate used to be used in the thirties to really emphasize the union between the big business and the state, is like I think like the most appropriate way to refer to these unions they're talking about because they're basically yep. saying we recognize that these gig workers have become a critical part of keeping our society going and we have to do everything we can to keep them from recognizing that as well and uh-huh. using their collective power to disrupt it. So what we'll do is we'll get ahead of them. We'll make fake unions that they're allowed to be in, but we won't give those unions any power whatsoever and that will head off their uh, attempts to actually organize. Like that's like the whole purpose of this fucking bill. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, isn't this always what the state tries to do to oppressed people who are starting to stand up for their rights, whether that takes place along class lines or, you know, uh, racial or ethnic or religious lines, is that they're always like, as soon as they start to feel actually threatened, like the people in power feel like there's a threat, they want to carve out like a little busy box for you to live in and for you to operate in that has no real power and can't really be expanded. They want you to, you know, they, they essentially want you to come into the casino and play with like a bonus that they've given you instead of being like this whole enterprise should be shut down. You know, this whole thing should belong to the workers or whatever. And you even have uh, people like Bhairavi Desai, I hope I'm saying that correctly, director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, who just came right out and said it. He's like, this is about creating a distraction and a real carve out from the PRO Act, uh, which is exactly it. Like there's better options on the table. There's better ways to treat these workers better that are already being fought for, that have already been fleshed out in many ways and, and are, are being pushed for in activist circles. And instead, uh, New York wants you to jump on this this gig worker union thing that they've proposed, uh, just like D-Ray's eight rules for protesting or whatever, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that I, I forgot to mention because like, well, the beginning story is so nice and, and good that the rest of this episode is actually loaded with, with like, kind of terrible shit. Like, be, be prepared. Be, you should be mentally prepared. Like, this is the start of, of some of the things that we're going to be discussing, and it's literal, like, fascist unions that the state is trying to impose on workers, saying that, like, no, you can't have, like, a regular union with strike power and actual organizing power and, and, and be part of the struggle. Instead, you're going to be relegated to a, a much less powerful, you know, uh, placeholder, like, put your face in the sign kind of kind of uh, union. Yeah, I mean, they don't even want to give these workers one union. They're splitting them up into rideshare drivers and delivery drivers to further, like, divide and conquer the workforce so that even their own, like, little busy box that they want to put these workers in can't, (laughs) even that can't, like, have the threat to power that it would normally have. It needs to be bifurcated. Right. Yeah, yeah. and and, I mean, the the other thing that, I thought was just, and I know that you had, you'd, you'd commented on this, this John was like yet another thing that we've seen from like comparisons with the, the legal weed business is because these States refuse to just fucking classify gig workers as employees, right? <laughs> which they clearly are. They have this insane, elaborate legalistic house of cards that they've put together to create, mm-hmm. quote, a portable benefits package. Oh, my so God. That gig workers can have, you know, the world's shittiest, most expensive health care. I love the idea of a portable benefits package, too, because it's like the whole it's the same brain mentality that they use in their marketing to get people to drive for things like Uber and Lyft and like delivery apps in the first place which is that like it's flexible it's personalized right. it's yours it's it's individualized and it's like i don't want individualized care i want universal care so no matter what fucking happens to me i still have care like yeah, yeah. like oh but you you preserve your choice i don't want a choice <laughs> i yeah. just want the good care that everyone should get Right. Mm-hmm. I, I love that because they're like, you, you have all the choices, the consumer. You can get kicked in the teeth or poked in the eye. And it's like, <laughs> I don't want a choice. I don't want that exactly. choice, you know? Like, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that one thing that we need to remember and and that we need to keep going back to is that the reason that unions, especially under unions under capitalism, uh, are needed is to be dual power. And if they are right. state controlled unions, then they are entirely co-opted. They are yeah. entirely like basically useless. Well, that's the thing. Like uh, a big a big organizing tactic or, or a big impetus to organizing in more radical union circles like half a century ago was that a lot of the unions were basically becoming run by the companies that they were supposed mm-hmm. to be antagonistic against. And when you live in a like a corporatized or a, or a fascistic or uh, anything reminiscent of 1930s Italy kind of society, uh, you can't treat the government as being separate from the corporations because that's right. quite exactly the point is that they're not. They work in you know perfect symbiosis with one another. Yeah. But thankfully, you know, yeah, the gig workers a little are up not... and down on this one. Yeah. Uh, the, the one... I put this story in here as like a good corollary because and I and, and these are both from labor notes. So labor notes kind of has them paired together as well. But they had another story showing that gig workers aren't just, you know, wait, sitting around hoping these fucking asshole legislatures are, are going to actually, you know, do something for their rights and have started forming their own. Not quite unions because of, you know, misclassification, but. In spirit, very much so. Uh, and this is a story about uh, gig workers in um, New York City who have formed an organization called uh, Los de- Deliveristas Unidos, um, basically, uh, Delivery Workers United. Um, and, and this story talks – really get, the, one of the things I really liked about this was it really gets into the actual like working conditions of a lot of these folks who are doing this. Because that right. – like you were saying, Lena, like they um, – and I think both of you have pointed this that like they really push this idea the the image of the gig worker as like all of this is elective it's your elective second gig to make a little bit of extra money and that's right. and it's it's all which it, it has a lot of parallels with the way that like people portray the minimum wage worker oh this is a this is a teenager and they're doing this to make extra spending money when again as we know the majority of those folks are people trying they're trying to you know get, it's adults trying to get by and oftentimes trying to raise a family and so this gets into the conditions that a lot of these people are working through so they they quote a, a driver here uh yonan mancia who says uh, i get up at seven uh, I drop my son off at school. At 9, I enter the platform, leave at 1 in the afternoon, come uh, back to have lunch, go back to the platform again at 2, and finish at 8, 9 in the evening. Jesus. Uh, so, And this is every day. So 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And the article points out that these folks are averaging 300 to $800 a week. And that's mostly in tips in that New even- York City. Yeah, that that won't pay your rent and your bills anywhere, least yeah. of all in New York City. That won't pay your fucking rent and bills in Gary, Indiana. Like Yeah, and, <sighs> and, and 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 so these are the sort of working conditions that they are desperately telling you you do not need a real union for. Right. Um but thankfully like, you know, these folks aren't idiots <laughs> as we know and the the workers have realized, you know, how fucked this all is and that the state isn't going to help them with it. And so they've started to band together to help each other. And which yep. is the, the really inspiring thing in here because they talk about how these folks, you know, just cause you know, even though like gig work is a weirdly individualized, um, like activity, like 
these delivery drivers run into each other all the time. They end up working together. And in the same way as any, you know, workplace, folks start to use any, you know, means to talk about the fucking shit they have to put up with. And in this case, a lot of it's Facebook. I mean, when they were when I was reading the article and they were talking to some of the organizers, the journalist who was writing even remarked that, like, uh, you know, a, a lot of these guys would stop and pat each other on the back and have a quick conversation and, you know, check in on each other's lives. And it's also worth noting that uh, a very large amount of these drivers are immigrant workers, many of whom are indigenous uh, Mexicans and other South Americans. So there's also uh, not only a class element here, but a, a racialized element in the way that these workers are treated. And to see the solidarity has been really inspiring. Like one of the things they do is they have a, um, a sticker, right, that has like a gig worker riding a bike on it. And the guy who in the article who was pointing it out, he was like, it even has a misprint on it. One of the arms is going to the wrong handlebar, but it doesn't matter. We see this <laughs> on each other and on each other's bikes and on each other's like messenger bags and stuff. And we know that we're in this together and we know that we have other friends out here on the streets of New York City. And that kind of like in person, but also kind of like decentralized solidarity is is a really powerful force to tap into when you're trying to do uh, organizing. And it did end up culminating. I think uh, in the article it says that they had a show of force, like a protest, um, that included over 500 uh, delivery workers in the streets on their bicycles all at the same time. Well, yeah, that was their, they, they mentioned they had their first big rally in October, mm-hmm. had about five to 600 drivers. And then last month, um, they had another rally that I, from what I could tell from reading about, it was basically like a moving caravan, cool. um, where they had about 2000 drivers forming essentially like a, a protest caravan to New York city hall. Um, and the thing that, <laughs> that I loved in this that they pointed out was that in these networks that they set up for, you know, sharing like just the shit that they go through, you know, every day in the workforce, they, re- they, they pointed out one of the common complaints they ran into is that if they got assaulted or robbed or, you know, harassed or something on the job, uh, shocking, I'm sure to our listeners, they did not get the best of help from the local police. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, and, and so, in response to that, they didn't, you know, petition to have the police help them more. They formed their <laughs> own rapid response cia Yeah. <laughs> and, and using, like, WhatsApp and Telegram groups, they were able to put together these, these grassroots response networks. And they mentioned that, like, if you send out an urgent message with your location, they said, quote, and all of a sudden you're going to see five or ten people getting there to help you. God damn. Wow. That is incredible. You're telling me that a bunch of people who have a, a, a common interest and a common economic situation are better at policing their community than a bunch of former jocks wearing badges <laughs> and blue shirts. <laughs> yeah. Wild, right? <laughs> yeah. That's incredible to me. I also love the idea of um, like 2000 delivery drivers on bikes you know, caravanning through the the city, like, oh, what do you think of this yeah. phalanx? I, you know, city li- cops. What yeah. do you think of this fascies? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've literally been hit by a police bicycle. Uh, I know how powerful those things can be. I mean, bicycles are are they're they're uh, they're a good tool to have in a protest. Yeah, well, and, you know, the cops have to ride them two at a time so they can give each other reassurance hugs. So there's a lot of weight on those bikes as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. You're, you're, we promise you're doing a good job. You know, not all <laughs> cops are bastards. They are just meanies. You got, I, I, I did just like a cop, two cops on a tandem bicycle, and the cop in the back is like, you got this, bud. I believe in you. Just shoot that guy. Just shoot him. Like, um, <laughs> no, any, yeah. Let's not give him ideas. Um, <laughs> that that but, dog just looked at you. But it's really cool. The, the, the Los Deliveristas and the Delivery Boys, which seem to be like the online presences for these kind of like union kind of union organizations uh have been posting live videos uh, of of delivery drivers assisting other delivery drivers and finding images of stolen bikes and helping other drivers re- like recover their bikes if they get stolen and like a that's incredible what an incredible way to show that like what you're doing doesn't necessitate police doesn't necessitate you know intervention by the state that you can handle this that you the workers are like trying to take charge of your own destiny and also too delivery boys is just a great name for a thing it sounds like a, yeah. an, a drive time radio like podcast or talk show <laughs> it, yeah it's a very dudes rock name i, I, I <laughs> yeah. b- big fan um but yeah like they mention in here that is with every one of these stories that we cover. The things that they are protesting for are stuff you would think would just be an assumed basic level of, of employment operation in a country like the United States, where they're protesting for a living wage, access to bathrooms, indoor rest stops, paid sick days, workers' comp for accidents, and protection against retaliation for inquiring about tip theft. They should have that stuff already. Like, yep. you shouldn't need a union to get that stuff, and that's why you do need a union, because this country is run by fucking craven lunatics who don't think you're regular people and deserve that stuff. Well, and they also have, like, an idealized version, like, oh, tip theft is impossible. The re- the app regulates it. There's no, like, if the app says it, then that's, that's uh, you know, that's law. But, you, but I don't yeah. think they realize that the company writes the apps. Well, we right. built this black box, okay? But the black box is infallible, even though we're not. It just works that way, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and 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 so far there has been some progress from their um, their pressure. Uh, there have been a package of five bills introduced uh, by the city council in New York City uh, starting last month. That would one would fine restaurants for denying drivers bathroom access. Uh, another would establish a minimum pay per trip, um, which is modeled after, I guess, an existing ordinance that sets a minimum wage for rideshare drivers. Okay. Um, which, which, by the way, would be made illegal by that uh, that bill that the state legislature is trying to write. Oh, it lovely. Would, it would get rid of the ability of municipalities to add any additional benefits for the workers in those unions. So that minimum wage that New York City added would be wiped off the books by that. That like that incredibly like minor mild reform even that is too much, right? Uh, for those folks, so so there is there has been some movement on this, um, but it's really just sounds like these folks are really just getting started with their organizing because like mm-hmm. to move in six months from October to April they quadrupled <laughs> the number of people they had in their demonstration. So I mean. I, I think that they are just starting to really realize like how much power their numbers give them. And, and I think that these sorts of, of grassroots organizations are, are really encouraging to see folks putting together uh, and not, you know, just buying into these sorts of nonsense schemes. Right. Well, and even towards the end of our notes here, you have listed that like they're facing an internal debate right now uh, within their, within their movement, whether to stick with lobbying for le- legislative change 
or to start pushing for a formal union for delivery drivers in the city. And I don't know which one is going to work better for them, but the fact that they've arrived at that juncture and they have to take that decision seriously is a very good sign of the, the, the speed with which they're picking up steam for this. So that's very encouraging to see. Yeah, so... So, folks, that was the one happy story until the very end of the episode. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that was, that's the last happy story. We would just, like, hold on until the meme review because um, it's going to be a little bit of a, a stressful story situation that we're going to – we're going to be talking about a uh, food plant in Wisconsin that yep. basically had a decimation of its workers – yeah, uh, yeah, it was at least 11 migrant workers at a green bean facility operated by Seneca Foods have died of COVID-19 complications, uh, making it one of the deadliest coronavirus outbreaks in the U.S. food processing industry. They're saying that one in 14 migrant workers at the facility died, not got COVID, not were hospitalized, died. Uh, and we were all kind of commiserating in the group chat before we recorded today about how awful this story was. Because as you read it, and as you read the details of how the of how Seneca Foods handled this, about how the workers were treated, about what their families were put through, and about what their coworkers were put through, and the way it was tried to be covered up, it's really you feel like you're falling down like one of the worst rabbit holes that you've ever encountered in your life. Uh, a lot of these workers who died were elderly. A lot of these workers were, who died had other health complications. Uh, that they already probably shouldn't have been doing difficult manual labor like this. Uh, and they were, you know, some of them were isolated in hotels without, you know, letting the, the hotel staff know that they were putting COVID positive people there. Some of them were crammed into buses with oh, sick yeah. people. Some of them were crammed into, uh, you know, workplace provided housing where there was no distinction between who was sick and who was not. So you can imagine how quickly the virus spread in all three of those situations. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, like this USA Today, John John just outlined a lot of the main parts, the, like the stories themselves. But if we get into to any of um, these stories, I mean, we're gonna see some extreme negligence on behalf of the company. Um, I think that I mean the bus situation. I think is the one that sticks out the most to me mm-hmm. um, because they literally put um, two dying old men on a bus full of other people to be. Um, to take a bus back home down to um, to Texas. Um, remember, this is in Wisconsin, so this is a very long bus ride where um, basically both of these people die. One of them on the bus. One of them after his brother, because this is these are two brothers, um, and and his brother ended up dying in the hospital a couple of day, a couple of days later, because yeah. Yeah, I mean it's heartbreaking. Like when the when the first uh, gentleman died, they stopped the bus, and they had to have paramedics come pronounce him dead at the scene and remove someone who had just died from COVID from the bus, and then they packed everybody back onto the bus to continue driving south, which is like that's unreal to me. You know that. That seems like it's, there had to be at least one concerned human at some point along that decision-making process who could have put a stop to that. Well, and and they describe, like, the working conditions these folks were working under in Wisconsin. And, and this, I just want to preface this with, this is all from a, because this is posted in USA Today, but it's 
It's an investigation specifically by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and Mm -hmm. I specifically want to highlight that paper because this is one of the best pieces of investigative journalism that I've read in a long time. Yep. And it's a horrifying story, but it, no, nobody ever talks to these fucking people. Nobody ever actually goes and talks to the workers and their families. They go talk to the fucking company representative or, you know, they make one phone call to a small business owner and they say, we talk to a community official or some shit. Mm-hmm. Right. And this one they actually did. They actually tracked down the families and they talked to them and their stories are fucking heartbreaking. Yep. Like the people, these folks, they worked at a company operated camp. They were housed in five barracks that were about 90 foot by 30 foot. Up to 30 workers would sleep in two rows of seven or eight bunk beds, sharing toilets, sinks, and showers within each barrack. Again, this is, this is not like, oh, we, we, this, like the pandemic hit in the middle of an already existing harvest. Like, they knew about this beforehand. Mm-hmm. They had plenty of time, information, and ability to set up appropriate housing for people. And they chose not to do it because it would cost more money. Well, not yep. only it's- that, they refused to test the workers. A lot of the people who died had never been tested. Some of them only got uh, got positive confirmations of COVID-19 post-mortem. Uh, I mean, like, that is the level of negligence that this company had when, in regards to, the, to these workers. Well, um, and you can see their guilt even just in the company's response. Uh, Matt Henschler, a Seneca Food senior vice president, and Timothy Benjamin, chief financial officer, declined to be interviewed. A statement by Henschler said, we cannot explain the virulence of the outbreak, but based on the steps taken, we do not believe our workplace was a source of spread, which is just so mealy-mouthed and fucking paper-thin that you they should know just from that response. They sent people with COVID to die on a bus across the nation. Yeah. The, the repercussions of that, there's actually, this article is incomplete because, like, we don't even know how many people were on that bus that also got COVID that then yeah. spread it in their communities. Well, yeah. That's the other thing. And to, to be clear, the 11 people that died, died over a two-month period. Like, that's, and that's only counting the workers at the plant. Like, that doesn't count, like you said, we don't know how many people who were on that bus trip got COVID. Right. And eventually died. We, we know don't know how many some... people at, at the bus stops along the way got COVID. We don't know if the bus driver got COVID or if now other bus drivers at that company might be infected. We don't know how many people in their family homes died because they were a relative of one of these people who now had COVID from a bus ride and was suddenly returned to their home in Texas or wherever. And now the rest of their family is sick where there's no accountability for any of that. There's barely even accountability for the deaths of these workers. Yeah, and I just want to read the end of this story for people because it. I think it really sets, it says really what is there is to be said about this, which is, mm-hmm. this is a story of uh, one of the men who died um, from this, which is Jose Angel Rosas, who was 73. He was one of the workers getting off in Laredo off the bus from, you know, where there had be already been two people associated with the bus who died. He took a taxi to the nearby home of his daughter, Luciana Diaz. Uh, he looked traumatized and sick, she said. He couldn't walk. I had to give him my shoulder so that he could walk. Diaz helped Rosas inside, and they sat in the living room. Her father talked about what he had seen on the bus. He thought two workers had died, not one, and about sickness in the camp. She took her father for a COVID-19 rapid test. It came back negative, but for the next day and a half, Rosas had a fever, was coughing, and had trouble breathing. Diaz took him to the hospital where he was placed in a COVID-19 unit. 
Worried that she too might be infected, Diaz, who's 52, got tested as did her 26-year-old daughter, Luisa Diaz. Both came back positive and the women developed symptoms and had to be hospitalized in the same hospital where her father was admitted. By then, Rosas was in the intensive care unit and Diaz and her daughter weren't allowed to visit. Diaz and her daughter were discharged after five days, but two days later, Diaz's sister, San Juanita Rosas, called her to say that the hospital had contacted her to report that their father had died. Her daughters paid for Rosas's funeral, sorry, uh, with his savings from working at the Seneca plant. San Juanita said through tears, he just went to work to pay for his own funeral. And that is one of the hardest things I've ever read. Yeah. I mean... Because these people didn't deserve this. No, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, like, we tell ourselves is a vestige of the early, like, industrial revolutionary period here in the United States. Like, that this is something that only happened to, like, coal miners from our grandparents' generation. But there are people out there, entire families, as illustrated by this story, you know, that are still dealing with the repercussions of COVID, are still experiencing unjust deaths, and are having to pour the money that their working family members, you know, risked and lost their lives to get just to pay for a a ceremony to remember them, which is like, if this doesn't make you want to grab your fucking torch and pitchfork, I really don't know what would, you know? And yeah. And this is, this is actually, I mean, like if it, if it had happened now, I mean, I think that people would be a little bit, more surprised but I like this literally happened during the most dangerous time of COVID-19 this happened in mm-hmm. like November and December of last of 2020 um and and like there were no precautions taken basically there were no like actual efforts to make sure that these people had the things they needed this is during very clearly one of the most dangerous times of COVID-19 in the United States and nothing was done. No. Yeah. It's, it's fucking outrageous. And you, you see it again in the response from the company. Uh, this guy, uh, what was his name? Timothy Benjamin from Seneca foods said that the company modified workers housing in accordance with CDC guidelines, which if just from the reporting in this article, you know that that's not true and worked with health officials to respond to positive cases, despite with the interviews from the workers that you see in here saying that the company deliberately obfuscated and ignored many positive cases and symptoms, and then also to identify people impacted and provide follow-up care, uh, which, if you read interviews with workers from the article, was taking incredibly sick people to a motel where they did not inform the motel staff that people with covid were going to be quote-unquote quarantined there and so of course they weren't really quarantined and then many of the workers said in interviews that they did not receive any medical care of any kind so it's just a lie on top of a lie on top of a lie like this company is trying to get away with literally sacrificing workers to a deadly virus and endangering the wider community both around their plant and where the workers are from for the sake of making this season's dividends for stockholders. It's one of the most openly disgraceful things I've ever seen. You can and call it genocide. Qualify. You can call it, well, it's at least a, an atrocity, right? And it certainly has genocidal characteristics. I wouldn't be all that hesitant to say that this is a class, it's classicidal and genocidal behavior at best. 
Yeah. At and then best. and then we expect some sort of uh, you know, recourse through the state because it's very clear that these deaths are tied directly to this these work conditions and mm-hmm. then osha comes out in, in december and says that there's nothing wrong with this place that everything's fine and i'm wondering how is it that this place with like people in bunks it, with 20 or 30 people in a room like sleeping br- like breathing and like literally i i guarantee if one person had covid in that room that they all had covid I mean, like, how is it that those work conditions are safe and meeting the CDC guidelines? Like, it, it, I, you know, I, I almost think that they do. And I think that I think that like that is a good indication of how poorly put together these sorts of organizations, OSHA and the CDC are. They are yeah. totally like gutted from any actual protections for the workers. They are worthless organizations. I mean, this is a perfect example of how the COVID-19 pandemic has been a genocide by plausible deniability because right. each party involved in this and each culpable party. So the company, the fucking state, the state OSHA, like every official that inspected this place and didn't blow the fucking whistle on it. Every one of them is doing the same goddamn spiel of, well, you know, we, it was a crazy time and we tried to f- do our best to follow the guidelines now and it's really just a tragedy right. and we don't know why. And it's fucking bullshit. This company's profits tripled last year well that's the thing it's like inspector a is like oh i talked to inspector b and he said this was fine and inspector b is like well i checked with regulator c and regulator c told me it was fine regulator c is like well i went to the company and they promised me and the company's like we technically followed through on our promises you can ask inspector a and it's like wait a minute if (laughs) if everybody did what they're supposed to do and it didn't fix the fucking problem, then that means that the whole system needs to be held accountable and possibly entirely torn down. Like, I can't even think about what would even begin to start making amends for this. Like, giving the company entirely to the workers right off the bat would be like a, a baby step in the right direction. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no accounting for this, right? Like... Yeah, well, no, I mean, in a just society, these people's heads would be placed on pikes at the ex- outside of the fucking city to right. warn corrupt officials who decide to fucking murder dozens of people in order to make a few million dollars that maybe that's not the best life choice. But uh, I don't know if we can put that part in the episode. Uh, you no. said in a just society. Yeah. That's Minecraft. So yeah. <laughs> We don't live in anything approximating that society. But. No. No. So... Anyways, <laughs> anyways, yeah. we move on to another corrupt like part of the state that's disenfranchising workers and basically uh, co-opting any sort of worker movement to basically lead them down a path that would put them on a bus untested to die. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, we're going to move on to the AFL-CIO, uh, the <laughs> the worst two three-letter agencies you could smash together <laughs> until you eventually start, you know, establishing the FBI-CIA, which unfortunately yeah. uh, would be awfully similar to what we're dealing with now. So the AFL-CIO quietly released a report on police reform that quietly, uh, they had been... 
being like literally didn't tweet about it didn't like it was on the website and they just said hands off we're not even i think what they said that that uh cnn picked up one small story on it and it's the only way that anyone found out about it right yeah, and then like, we're, we're reading this from an in these times article yeah hamilton uh, nolan has been on top of this yeah hamilton nolan is is a badass and i suggest you give them a follow on twitter uh but it's it even says in the first like paragraph of this article uh a sign of how controversial the issue has become for america's largest union federation as it tries to split the difference between supporting calls for racial justice and representing the interests of police unions and let me tell you there's no difference to be split there there's no centrist take on this you don't you you have to choose you it's must not choose. complicated yeah, yeah it <laughs> shouldn't be a hard decision <laughs> you're organized uh, labor <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, though, is like they probably make an incredible amount of money and receive a very large amount of state support for representing police unions yeah, because it sure. serves a twofold purpose of promoting the police and uh, le- legitimizing them while also delegitimizing union like organization in general in the eyes of people who are anti-police. So that's a win-win for the ruling class. And they make it worth the AFL-CIO's time. They make it worth Richard Trumka's time. It, yeah, I mean, though, this whole thing is just such a betrayal of the membership of all the various, you know, mm-hmm. the smaller organizations within the AFL-CIO. Because there's just a couple of quotes in here that are, like, you, you, you like, can't believe this is coming. I mean, unfortunately, I can believe it's coming from major union <laughs> in America, but I wish I couldn't. Right. Uh, where they say things like, quote, we hear the calls coming from communities across the United States to abolish or defund the police, and we hear demands for reforms and stronger accountability in the wake of unarmed people losing their lives and in interactions with law enforcement. Nice euphemisms for murder. Uh, mm-hmm. While we do not believe that defunding or abolishing the police is a solution, it is clear we must make changes in law enforcement to build a sense of mutual respect, trust, and accountability. The way to improve public safety systems and services actually requires greater investment. This is no different than many other basic government services, including education, water, sewer, and roads. This is why you can't be like... Yeah, this is yeah. why you can't be like, oh, Joe Biden's a union guy. He's a union president. Things are going to be okay. The unions are in power now. It's like, shut the fuck up. The The whole idea that, like, we can't change something without giving it more money is, like, the fucking... <laughs> that's that's the insanity that, like, is is ruining, like, economic and labor discourse in this country in general. Like, when we... We, we shouldn't have been talked down from abolish the police to defund in the first place. And now the argument is like, oh, if you really want to affect racial justice, you have to give the police more money. It just has to be earmarked for sensitivity training and and, and racial bias training, which, guess what, is probably going to be administered by the police for the police. So it'll already have any possible progressive content completely written out of it. And in fact, we'll do the exact opposite. Yeah. And it's, well, the other thing is, like, if this was a new issue, this would still be a bullshit response. Right. But at least they might have the excuse of, we haven't tried this before. But we've tried training the fucking cops. Fucking, the the person who murdered Dante Wright was, I believe, 
a, a, somebody who does these sorts of trainings. And what these trainings actually teach the cops is what to say after they murder someone in order to get away with it. That's exactly. why you see cops yelling. They, they yell taser to, so that they can then later be like, oh, oops, I meant to grab my taser and I accidentally grabbed my gun. That's all this shit does is it gives these people more money and teaches them better ways to get around the system so that they can keep killing people. It's a seminar on how to lie. And it's a yeah. seminar on how to blend seamlessly into the, uh, what do they call it, the, the blue wall of silence, the, yeah. the original uh, blue euphemism about the police, which meant that like, if one of, your, one of your cop buddies kills someone extra judicially, keep it to your fucking self. Like they're, they operate like the mafia for real. Except the mafia is at least cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, this is where I, uh, I will definitely like, you know, lean on some stuff from like the IWW. It's like mm -hmm. the point of the unions is to carry forth the working classes, you know, advocacy in the class struggle because of how property relations work. And if you have one group whose entire purpose of existence is maintaining those property relations, i.e. the police, <laughs> then that group has diametrically opposed interests <laughs> to the rest of the labor movement. It's like, damn. It's, this is not fucking hard. <laughs> I think this Rudolph Rocker guy might have been onto something. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, so this this is a complete abdication of of what the afl cio is supposed to be for yeah right i'm what i'm remembering is when we the very first time we covered this is literally episode two this is when the like there was a lot of those those actions going on last year when the mm -hmm. abolish the police turned into defund the police and and right around that time when we were covering like the reasons why the like police unions shouldn't be in here and then i mean like just think of this is episode 50 we hit it took it took them like 49 of our episodes to come out with nothing to come out with bullshit to yeah. literally just tell us to go fuck ourselves it were it's literally almost a year later right now it's like a yeah. month shy of it it took them 11 months to be like we got nothing well, <laughs> please give the cops like more money actually one of, all I could think of like when I finished reading this was like, why do you think people don't join labor unions? <laughs> like, what, right. Why do these people think that there's not a lot of enthusiasm among some segments of young workers for traditional organized labor? And it's like, it's because of this shit. Because like the leadership is this completely detached from the, the rank, the needs of the rank and file people and are living in this fucking... Uh, bureaucratic circle where the only people that they end up talking to are, you know, representatives from the company or from the government or these fucking police unions. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's, this, well, this shit is so frustrating. <laughs> yeah. This episode is, is very heavy. Oh, I'm so angry. <laughs> this is yep. so fucking angry. And, yeah, you know, uh, to add insult to injury, the AFL-CIO just doesn't even want to respond to this. Uh, did not respond to questions yeah. about the report and its release. Also did not respond to questions to make members of the subcommittee available for interviews. Fred Redman, the United Steelworkers vice president who co-chaired the committee, declined an interview request. Several major unions that participated in the subcommittee 
also did not respond to information requests. Uh, the role of police, it says here in the article, the role of police unions in the labor movement remains the issue that union leaders least like to talk about in public because uh, it makes them a lot of money and it's widely unpopular. That's fucking why. Just and something doing, needs to be done about it. Doing the work of the bosses for them. Yes, That's they are literally, they, they are... This, when when your labor union is going to bat for police like this, it is the same as when your your union, union steward is employed directly by the company instead. Well, of by and the they union. also are the kind of people to uphold labor peace uh, and other sorts of like long contracts yep. and 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 no strike clauses and and all of that shit. All this stuff that we were talking about with the gig workers that the state is trying to impose, the AFL CIA has already done it. They they yep. have literally created the model. For that yeah. sort of repression. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't have a good color. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. No, because it just sucks. It's like, we got to, people who have any relation to the AFL, y'all got to get rid of Trumpka. You got to get rid of the, the leadership there. Like, yeah. new I mean, people are the in, lead in, in charge or the, a new organization. There uh, is a goddamn Cheeto. In the <laughs> AFL-CIO Union Hall. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that if anybody, if we're going to learn anything from the AFL-CIO, we need to remember uh, that, like, Cooper Carraway from the South Dakota AFL-CIO, like, actually rewrote a lot of, like, the shit that said, like, no communists, no, like, like, this, like, we need, if we want this, the, the AFL-CIO to be any sort of, like, good union like i think we should be listening to to that guy honestly like mm -hmm, i think yeah. i think that out of all of the um out of all of the things i've ever heard of the afl cio he's one of the only good things hell yeah so, i mean make unions more communist is a good take you yeah. know yeah, just I flat out agree. or at least more class oriented or like broadly class analysis based is is good i that's unquestionably good <laughs> i mean even if we just start with making them, you know, more responsive to the rank and file membership. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How that about we start a, with that? That's a great step. That's a great step. Well, talking but, about steps, uh, there has been yeah. a quiet campaign by United Auto Workers organizers at the University of California, which ended Monday with more than 10,000 signed cards officially submitted to authorities that would create the Student Researchers United a UAW, representing more than 17,000 higher education workers. So... That's really quite exciting. I mean, it's yeah. just signed cards at this point, so we're you know we still have to kind of wait and see. But Maybe uh, the, the step and all the all yeah. the different like processes of the NLR that the NLRA outlines. And right, but it's important because student researchers, along with graduate students and other kind of like student employee hybrids, face a lot of labor discrimination and are often criminally underpaid and given no benefits whatsoever. Uh, so these union activists are apparently not required to hold a formal election and can instead just submit the 10,441 cards to California's Public Employee Relations Board in Oakland. And they march down to the office uh, uh, just with a banner just after 2 p.m. And the signatures are just waiting to be certified at this oh, point. So. Okay. I actually, I guess I must have missed that detail because I was so focused on some of the other things like the fact that the UAW and other cases of stories recently has not been doing as cool as stuff. Right. Um, and that, that this is pretty cool. But then, you know, you also get into, I guess there's a, a lot of these workers are actually like the healthcare workers at um, at the, the universities. So they are slightly longer. But then we also have to take into consideration that this is a 
high turnover union. Like they right. need this right now, and then they need to maintain momentum. And right. uh, and because if they don't, like this, like with with the amount of turnover that a college union could have, it could easily fall apart in a couple of years. Right, because like student student uh, employees graduate right like right. or, or they go to a different place to do their doctoral research or they leave for any number of unrelated reasons to whatever the union is trying to address at the college in particular yeah, yeah and like e- even if you happen to take like you do your master's and then you do your doctorate and then you do postdoc you do all that stuff at one mm-hmm. organization that's still only you know a certain amount of years there's no right like, this sort of thing isn't the sort of organization that's going to generate too too many you know lifelong folks so like i I don't want us to sound like this is bad it's very i'm it's very good that these workers are getting organized Mm -hmm. but like it's it's definitely been interesting to think about you know the the contradictions involved when you have a, a union that is in sort of a weird place like a lot of these these grad student unions where there's like that built in timer for for membership where you have this amount of time to educate new members or potential new members and to start or building, you know, trying to make that organization radical and actually work for you until your time runs out. And then yeah, you got to right. do it all over again. Well, Dan and you and I were sitting in chat last night talking about this article a little bit, or like this, this kind of organizing effort um, specifically saying that like what they need is they need to keep doing worker actions. They, yeah. they, they need to make sure that they keep momentum going for like this union and they need to re like they need to radicalize and educate every single year they need to have big actions they need to be doing things every single year so that they can get it ingrained in the in like the process it needs to be like i think you mentioned like a replacement of greek culture like it needs to be like empowered in a way that like this is what we do every year we go on strike every year you know well yeah like what if instead of like for, and I know this is going to make me sound like a gigantic nerd, which is fine because that's an accurate representation. But like, there's so, like because we have you know you hear about the problems involved with like all the terrible shit that happens with Greek life on you know U- U.S. campuses and all the horrible culture associated. Well, what if instead of you know for Rush you you know get dangerously drunk and like uh, do a bunch of you know racist and homophobic shit? What if instead you occupied all of the administrative offices and demanded better uh, wages and working conditions for all the TAs? And nobody that would be an excellent exercise, especially because nobody's saying you can't have a couple beers. While oh you yeah, do it. no, yeah. you can still do the drunk part. Just prefer, preferably not the dangerously part. Yeah, or any of the in- incredibly, uh, you know, yeah, racist all the or whatever. All, all that other yeah. shit. It makes me wonder if, like, uh, do Greek universities have a, a North American life program <laughs> where they all eat, Boy, like, I cheese curds and, and cheeseburgers and wear, like, boat shoes and sweatpants? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But, I mean, like, I know it's, like, a silly image, but I, like, I, I think that that idea, Lena, that you were talking about, about, like, ritualizing the sort of thing, because, like, a, a college environment is the sort of place where that sort of stuff can catch on pretty quickly and, yeah. and, right. and really become a tradition. Cause there's so many of those sorts of things that you're used to already in the, the university environment. Right. Well, I mean, and, there's and, like, and, that's why like fucking religious recruiters and like Scientologist people and stuff go to college campuses is because like, that's a good time to catch someone and get them thinking about something they haven't thought about before. And 
if you don't go and organize these people and get them thinking about class relations or something that's like actually fucking worthwhile, uh, you know, some weird Jehovah's Witness is going to come along and have them knocking doors for Jesus pretty soon. So <laughs> don't miss your opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think that we also can take a little lesson from like the transit unions in France and some other countries. Like literally yep. every year they go on strike. They use the holidays as a way to go on strike because that's when people need the transit working. They need it to be moving because everybody goes on holiday and then they go on strike and people are like, you best give them what they want because I need to <laughs> yeah. go on holiday. Yeah. And uh, and we can take lessons from things like that and create a ritualized action plan to, to fight power. Um, right. I, I, I love that. that. I- that's a what what I would suggest for these people. Honestly, uh, every year the the French transit unions are like fires and missiles, but I am like underpaid. Okay, slow down <laughs> the buses. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah. So uh, like, look. Uh, while there are you know potential rocky hazards out there, it's still fucking dope that this is you know seventeen thousand people. It's gonna be huge in one stroke. Getting, mm-hmm. getting hopefully into this union, and that that's fucking awesome. So I, I hope they're able to really build it into a strong, vibrant organization. Hell yeah, you love yeah. to see it. Yeah, and what? speaking of strong, vibrant organizations, it's time oh for the mean review. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I want a slushy now. Just looking at this first one, like I need to go to a Seven Eleven pronto after this recording is over and get myself a... Fu- I don't like raspberry or blueberry raspberry, but I like well, the Well, slushies. I'm told that they're That's the same. The thing, the thing <laughs> is, is that I just, you know... I was I was not privy to this information, and I'm feeling a little attacked by this meme. <laughs> so uh, the the top line on this this is actually kind of a, a longer meme, but it says motherfuckers pulled a blue raspberry on us, and they have like a slushy that is raspberry, and then they have a slushy that is blue raspberry, and I think the implication here is that they taste the same. Right in 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 slushy form, it's they're the same flavoring. It's just one's yep. blue, different yeah. food coloring. <laughs> Right, because yeah. raspberry then bo- flavor is clear. By the way, raspberry flavor doesn't carry like raspberry color. In <laughs> right, it. it's not how then, taste works. Right below it is like right wing, and then blue right wing, which is basically <laughs> to say that you know, like the Republicans and the Democrats are the exact right. same thing. And and they thought we wouldn't notice. <laughs> Obviously, the, the full text on that is motherfuckers pulled a blue raspberry on us and thought we wouldn't notice. And then compares the raspberryness to you know the fact that what well, this reminds me of the meme that we did a couple weeks ago. It's like it's not fascism when we do it with the guy right. holding the, the the donkey banner. It's blue well, maga. I've been saying blue maga on this show, on my other shows, on my guest spots because like when people ask you what do you think of the Joe Biden presidency, you have to tell them straight up like oh it's the same as the Trump presidency. It just has a better PR department and is maybe a little less unstable which when it's that evil isn't necessarily a good thing you don't want a functional evil party (laughs) you know operating things yeah well um then I guess on the same kind of thought of Joe Biden our next (laughs) meme actually has like a flame background it clearly is like a screen grab from like Instagram or something like that because it's got a one out of ten on it but um but it's (laughs) but the this is a the the shrugging guy, uh, Getty images guy, like he's just some short haired guy in a blue shirt. I think shirt this is actually like a. I think this is actually a famous person who did stock photos oh. before they got oh, really? properly famous. Yeah, I think someone told me this was like a Nickelodeon star 
or something. I don't remember his name. I'm old, you know. Nickelodeon so like was meant fairly Zach. odd parents Is to it me. Is it like but... Zac Efron or something? Yeah, something like <laughs> that's, that. That's the name that I wanted to say, but I wasn't willing to be wrong. Yeah, I, I was. I was going to say uh, Josh Bell, but I don't actually. I don't have a face for that name. That's just a name that's floating around in my brain. Right. Well, but anyways, the top <laughs> text on this. this yeah, yeah. The the top text on this one is uh, when Biden voters say, "I didn't vote for this," because obviously this is, this is probably like Joe Biden voting for the weapons plan for to supply Israel with ways to kill Palestinians. And then the bottom text on this is, "You kind of did." Like, you did vote for this. You did vote for this to happen. I don't know what to tell you. Sorry. And, yeah. and spent months telling all of us we had to do the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, that shit has been real frustrating right. and is going to continue to be real frustrating because they're not going to change the tune. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of shit staying the same, next meme's the same guy. Same fucking guy. <laughs> same shrugs. Uh, but this time it says at the top, communism doesn't work. And then, uh, you know, overlaid on each of, of my guys' shrugs here, it's like, defeating Nazi Germany, first human in space, over one billion lifted out of extreme poverty. It's like, I don't know to what degree you don't think communism has worked, but <laughs> you maybe get better, like, metrics <laughs> for assessing Yeah, yeah uh, it's like, like, see, a system for people who say communism doesn't work that does work, capitalism produced all the shit above that we just read about that right. was incredibly fucking horrifying. <laughs> well, right, I mean, but that's, uh, that's working. I mean, the, the the whole, like, communism doesn't work right there, uh, especially in comparison to capitalism, is, like, might is right. It's literally yeah. fascist ideology. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, like, uh, to get a little anecdotal, I was at my stepdad's birthday party a couple of days ago, and I was talking to his elderly mother. I think she's in her mid-80s. Uh, and she has been all over the world. And China came up, and uh, my my immediate family kind of evacuated the room because they're like, "John's gonna have some opinions." Uh, <laughs> but I was shocked at how good her take was. She was like, "Oh yeah, I was there in 2015, and their particular form of communism has really done a lot for the Chinese people." I mean, you look around; they're happy, they're working. A lot of them have good paying jobs. A lot of them have been lifted up from subsistence farming, and I was like shocked at how much I agreed with her. And th- and then she was like. You could never do that here, though. Americans just wouldn't <laughs> like it. And I was like, I don't know. I think Americans might like it more than you're giving them credit for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still, though, that's a much more nuanced That's surprising. Yeah. yeah. I was shocked, especially because, you know, she's moderately wealthy. She's not ruling class or anything, but, like, she doesn't have to worry about money. Uh, and I, I just expected her to have a much worse take on, on present-day Chinese-style uh, yeah. movement towards communism. Yeah. And. So this next one, uh, the standard virgin Chad format, but this is one that I really liked. And I'm not going to read all of them because that would take fucking forever. But a few of the choice ones because it's the virgin cop versus the Chad pizza guy. I like this one already just because it is. this is about worker empowerment. That's right. Cops are not workers. Because you've got the cop over here. This shitty dude. A tool of the bourgeois only protects capital and poverty uh, his mere presence almost always creates unease and like, you know, will probably shoot your dog and yeah. hides in traffic to generate revenue for the state. Whereas the Chad pizza guy, on the other hand, is a beloved essential worker, is extensively trained and likely serve safe certified. Yep. Will not shoot your dog. Will <laughs> ask you to take a feedback survey. Yep. 
His car is clearly marked invisible and is statistically more likely to die on the job than a police officer. I never thought about that second to last one. The cops hide the fact that they're cops. The pizza guy is like, do you see the giant red Pizza Hut hat on top of my car? <laughs> That's like, how you know it's me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I, I like this a, a lot, really, honestly. I mean, pizza delivery drivers are braver than any troop. So Absolutely. Give it up for the thin bread crust line. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I remember our, that one too. <laughs> our last one is a is a real Marxist memes, which I like, uh, oh, and it yeah. just says the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. First book cover is Bugs Bunny's carrot machine, where he's got like a Dr. Seussical kind of machine that is producing carrots, apparently. And then the second book just says Bugs Bunny, too many carrots. <laughs> he's surrounded by <laughs> baskets of carrots, and it says fuck at the bottom. And I like the Marxist element of this, but it also reminds me of that. Um, that tarot card meme where it's like me drunk at 1 a.m. collecting as many swords as possible and then the man <laughs> weeping in his bed with the wall full of swords and he's like me in the morning not knowing what to do with all my fucking swords. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, well, but so I, I want to understand this a little bit better. Like, I, I want to make Dan explain a little bit. Like, what did the tendency of the rate to pro- of profit to fall? Like, so they're producing all these carrots, right? So this is a uh, this is a classic problem. You see this happen all the time. This is your your classic crisis of capitalism here. You see Bugs, the bourgeois uh, carrot producer here. He's 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 figured out his new way. He's gonna make all his money. He's got this carrot machine. This thing's fucking crazy. It does the work of ten people picking carrots. So he can fire all sorts of workers, pay way less money in wages. And so now he can sell carrots for cheaper, but still make a profit because the organic composition of his capital has increased right. because he is spending a higher percentage of his outlay on his constant capital in the form of machinery instead of his variable capital in the form of wages. The problem with this, though, arises that now you have sent so many people into the reserve army of labor that they are no longer able to purchase these this huge amount of products that you have created by increasing the organic composition of your capital. (laughs) And you have now reached a crisis of capitalism where you have created far too many carrots for any of the people to be able to buy. But that, and there's a, there's an extra level of irony there uh, with regards to resource distribution, where you've created a super abundance of a necessary product and, simultaneously a barrier that prevents the people who would actually get that product from having it. So there's like um, a horrible, like a, like an out and out evil, like cosmic irony to, to the situation that you've created. So that, and, and then on top of this, you've also put yourself in a situation where you were earning money hand over fist and now your rate of profit has just started to plunge, just completely spiral. Yeah. You've got, you've got these people starving in the streets while the carrot, uh, warehouses are burst at the seams. <laughs> yep. Wow. That, that's, <laughs> thank you. This, this is, you. That this is really... your brain on the three volumes of Capital. Yeah. <laughs> right? I've only read the first one. I don't, don't credit me for being too smart. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, if you want more great analysis like that, check out Dan's episode on Detroit I Do Mind Dying in the Patreon right. feed. Um, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash work stoppage and uh, give us five dollars it actually we are entirely listener funded so all of this stuff is done because you help us out um, if you also maybe uh, don't have the five dollars I have a way of getting you the episode come into the discord join the discord there's a link in the show notes also 
If you wanted to help us out, you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or find a terrible podcast, some neoliberal bullshit. Give him zero stars and tell him to listen to us. Follow John on Twitter uh, at Facebook Villain, me at Solidarity B. Also listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table, the podcasts of John and Dan. And we will see you next week. Uh, Remember, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Labor antagonism forever. forever.